Just before we start, I want to say that this episode was recorded before we'd read the Helena Kelly book, Jane Austen, The Secret Radical, which we referred to in the feedback section last time. And that's why we don't refer to it at all when we're talking about Colonel Brandon and Eliza. Eleanor could not find herself in the carriage with Mrs Jennings and beginning a journey to London under her protection and as her guest without wondering at her age. I'm Ellen. And I'm Harriet. And this is Reading Jane Austen. And for this episode, we're again joined by my partner, Michael. Hello. This week, we're looking at chapters 26 to 31 of Sense and Sensibility. Do you have a hundred word summary? Yes, I do. Eleanor and Marianne go to London with Mrs Jennings. They do not see Willoughby, although Marianne expects to every day. Colonel Brandon calls to ask Eleanor about the engagement and says he wishes Marianne all imaginable happiness and that Willoughby may endeavour to deserve her. Eleanor and Marianne encounter Willoughby at a party, but he barely talks to them. The next day, he writes to say his affections have long been engaged elsewhere. Colonel Brandon tells Eleanor that Willoughby seduced, impregnated and abandoned Brandon's ward Eliza, and Mrs Jennings learns Willoughby is about to marry a rich Miss Grey. So, that's my summary. Right. Well, do you want mine then? Much the same. Marianne and Eleanor travel for three days in a closed carriage to London, with Marianne scarcely speaking. On their arrival, Marianne tries to make contact with Willoughby, but he avoids her for nearly a week. They meet by accident at a party, and he greets her as a distant acquaintance. She writes demanding an explanation, and he responds, telling her he is engaged to a Miss Grey. Marianne suffers a nervous collapse, and Mrs Jennings and her circle soon discover what has happened and denounce Willoughby. Colonel Brandon, in an effort to provide comfort for Marianne, tells Eleanor about Willoughby's seduction of his ward. You gave a lot more detail about Marianne's journey through these chapters than I did. What I felt that these three chapters and the very beginning of the next one are almost the most unsatisfactory part of the whole of Sensibility and possibly the whole of Jane Austen. They just seem to be such a muddle and a mess. There's so much backstory that it probably isn't looked at properly. If the reader's trying to build up what was happening, the sort of suspense there, but it's not a suspense that's sort of prepared for you. You know, you're there and you're thinking, well, why isn't Willoughby replying to Marianne? You're thinking, why is this the first time Marianne writes to Willoughby? Why didn't she write to him earlier? How does she know Willoughby's address? He's lodging in Bond Street, you know, up above the shop, presumably. Does the Tuppany Post have a complete register of every... (laughs) No, she just sits down and off the letter goes to him. And all these other things come up. We don't know why Willoughby has to be married in a hurry. And we're not really given any sort of explanation. It's sort of suspense, but it's not properly planned suspense. Mm. The getting married in a hurry... Yes, that doesn't come out until much, much later. We learn in this section that he's getting married to Miss Grey with £50,000, but we don't know what the impetus was for it. No, sorry, we kind of do because Mrs Jennings says he's all to pieces and 
I warrant you Miss Marianne would have been ready to wait till matters came round, but that won't do nowadays. Nothing in the way of pleasure can ever be given up by the young men of this age. Yeah, well, that, that's one of the nice bits in these chapters. I mean, I just get this feeling that she's got the manuscript and unlike Pride and Prejudice, she sort of more or less just cobbled it together. This sense I have that up till then, you have this sort of suspense story that's not really properly prepared for. She does build up the suspense in terms of Willoughby doesn't come and he doesn't come and then he leaves a card and they're devastated that they've missed him. It is kind of building up that something must be wrong but we don't know what. I do agree that that first bit is nice. It's what happens after that where I thought back and I thought this is something I'd always skip. What bit would you skip? Oh, well, I found it sort of fairly boring from the moment when Marianne realises it. We don't get any account of what Marianne's thinking or feeling. When I thought about it later, I thought, oh, yes, but after all, Jane Austen doesn't do people in a really miserable state. The opportunity for that is there. But what we get is practically clinical notes about what's happening to Marianne. Oh, she's looking out of the window. Oh, she's lying down on the bed. Oh, she's got dressed. Oh, she's come down to dinner. Mm. And I don't think I'd ever want to read it through for what is happening. Mm. And I've realised coming through this time that I was really so relieved when Mrs Jennings comes back saying, I've heard, I know what's happened, and suddenly you get people living a real life, <laughs> not just taking clinical notes. Mm. That doesn't cover very much. Oh. <laughs> uh, maybe it felt longer than it actually was. That was actually something I wanted to talk about, which is the role of gossip and the way people seem to just hear things. I don't know how large the gen members of the gentry were in London, but it does seem that you can just go to a shop and hear people talking about people you know. That's what I want to talk about next week, is the very small area within which they're all living. And also, presumably, people who are acquainted tend to frequent the same shop. They're all going to Bond Street all the time. Yeah, so when Mrs Jennings has learned about Willoughby getting married, she says, Mrs Taylor told me of it half an hour ago, and she was told by a particular friend of Miss Gray herself. And then Colonel Brandon says he heard about it in a stationer's shop where I had business. Two ladies were waiting for their carriage, and one of them was giving the other an account of the intended match in a voice so little attempting concealment that it was impossible for me not to hear all. The name of Willoughby, John Willoughby, frequently repeated first caught my attention and what followed was a positive assertion that everything was now finally settled respecting his marriage with Miss Grey. Anyway, how convenient is that, that he just <laughs> happens to be in the same place as two people who just happen to be talking about Willoughby who he knows. The other thing I like though is that comparison between how Mrs Jennings imparts the gossip that she's heard and then the much more measured way that Colonel Brandon <laughs> yeah. relates what is also still essentially gossip. Mrs Jennings at least is told stuff. Colonel <laughs> Brandon just hangs around <laughs> and sort of listens. Well, no, he makes it very clear that he couldn't avoid oh, listening because yeah, they were talking but, so loud. But poor Colonel Brandon, anyway, is forced to hear this information. <laughs> mm. There's one thing that I found it quite moving, the way that Marianne is absolutely convinced somebody has been telling Willoughby things against her. 
she doesn't think Willoughby has fallen in love with another woman. She doesn't give any of those explanations. Somebody has been to Willoughby. Somebody has told him things about me that can't be true. Mm. It's not terribly likely, but it's really very sad mm. with her. Yeah. Well, the other bit I was going to say was about the confidence. Eleanor says, why don't you talk to me? And she says, you have no confidence. Mm. That was one thing I was going to bring up, is that it's from this point that we know that Eleanor and Marianne are now in precisely similar situations but these sections are still all about Marianne there's only really a couple of passing references to Eleanor thinking well actually I do know what you're going through but I can't talk about it we're just sort of given this reminder that they're in the same situation a couple of passing references and one explicit comparison where she says her own situation gained in the comparison for while she could esteem Edward as much as ever however much they might be divided in future her mind might always be supported. That's actually drawing the difference between the two, which is important, but we're still not really seeing the explicit comparison in behaviour which we get once the Edward thing is made public. Well, we should probably talk about the Eliza story. It is quite a dramatic story for Jane Austen, dramatic backstory for Jane Austen. Yeah, well, nothing like as dramatic as some of the early... Juvenilia, in a sense she's almost got into that narrative style yeah well it's the story from the Juvenilia but delivered in Colonel Brandon's very measured way and of course this story finishes with him telling us about the duel but let's not talk about that now since Michael's going to be talking about dueling later it's a big chunk of info dump narrative text oh yes yes I actually have some things I wanted to say about it first of all he talks about how my brother had no regard for her his pleasures were not what they ought to have been that leaves it so open to the imagination did he have lots of mistresses was he an alcoholic was he a gambler which aspect of Wickham did he display (laughs) or all of them put together well it sounds like it yes or was he gay that is an interpretation you could put on the words his pleasures were not what they ought to have been there must have been gay people that they knew even if they didn't know they were gay and even if nobody knew they were gay and even if they never acted on it, they still existed. But I don't think it's one that you're meant well, to read into it. Well, surely gossip about Byron and his circle would yeah. have meant oh, yes. that, that people were aware of the possibility. Yes. One thing that really leapt out to me this time when I was reading it closely is there are two sentences where Brandon is actually glad that she died. He says at one point, happy had it been if she had not lived to overcome these regrets. So that seems to be basically saying, it's a pity she didn't die while she was still married to my brother before everything got really bad. And then later on when he's found her, he says that she was to all appearance in the last stage of a consumption was, yes, in such a situation it was my greatest comfort. That again, he's been searching all these years, he's found her, she's had a terrible life, And so I'm really pleased that she's about to die. Well, there's been a very long history in Western literature, going back to the Middle Ages or beyond, of women who have lost their virtue, redeeming themselves by dying. Yes. I was having a a bit of a look through the Claire Tomlin biography, and in that she says, at the time 
particularly this was written, that Jane Austen could have been meaning Marianne to die, that that could have been in her mind because I think she says it's part of this particular set of sensibilities that it's exciting for people to die. For people to have a tragedy that finishes in a death. A tragedy that finishes in death, that this is the proper consummation of this particular kind of story. Mm. The other thing that comes up just a little bit in this section is the question of reputation and the fact that Marianne has been writing to Willoughby, which makes everyone think they're engaged, and there's a bit where Eleanor encourages Mrs Jennings to sort of quash any rumours of that to protect Marianne's reputation from, I guess, the idea that she'd been writing to a man she wasn't engaged to. If you keep all that more secret and she equally hopes that Willoughby will keep silent because his reputation can't actually suffer, whereas Marianne's can. It's actually, of course, the thing that the Middletons and the Palmers and Mrs Jennings are doing is more or less letting it be known that Marianne was engaged to Willoughby. There's one point where... Mrs Jennings says to Eleanor that they were engaged and Eleanor says, well, they weren't actually. And Mrs Jennings says, yeah, anyone could see they were engaged. Yes. And Eleanor lets it drop because it may be a bit helpful for Willoughby's reputation, but yeah. not for Marianne's. Yeah, that sort of thing. It's in these chapters that we're really seeing the turnaround of Mrs Jennings from being a purely comic and highly irritating character to being a still comic and still somewhat irritating, but essentially really kind-hearted and nice person. It's in these sections we learn that, in fact, most of her acquaintance is not something that Eleanor and Marianne need to blush for, that yeah. she's so angry about Marianne. Although she's not very sensitive in how she tries to comfort Marianne, she tiptoes around the room so that Marianne isn't disturbed, she brings her the wine, she wants her to have sweetmeats and olives. And dried cherries yes. she wants her to have. Yes. yes. So she's, as I said, this is just where our perceptions of her change, I think, quite significantly from being profoundly irritating and basically not someone we've got a lot of time for, other than as a laughable creation, to someone who is emerging off the page a little bit more as a nice person. Yes, and you just wonder how much Jane Austen was planning this. I'm pretty sure that right back in her earlier character sketch of Mrs Jennings, she doesn't give any hint that this is going to happen when she talks about how irritating she was. She does right at the start describe her as kind-hearted, but you never really see much of that until now. Perhaps it's the case one often hears of other writers talking about how they start out with a set of assumptions about a character and once they start writing them they leap off the page and tell them actually I'm going to do this. <laughs> yes, yeah. Except it is unusual in Jane Austen, you know, minor well, comic character. The point is mm. this is again my feeling that she didn't do much revision of sense and sensibility, that she didn't go through as she did with Pride and Prejudice, looking for consistency through the entire manuscript. She says this here, she says something there. That's my whole impression of the book, that she simply hasn't edited it in the sort of way she edited everything else she wrote. Mm. So yeah. you don't have total consistency. Mm. What was your favourite sentence from this section? My favourite sentence is Mrs Jennings has just brought in this glass of wine for Marianne. And it's a lovely long sentence. 
It says, Mrs Jennings, though regretting that she had not been five minutes earlier, was satisfied with the compromise, and Eleanor, as she swallowed the chief of it, reflected that though its effects on a colicky gout were at present of little importance to her, its healing powers on a disappointed heart might be as reasonably tried on herself as on her sister, which I think is sort of got a lovely picture of Eleanor taking this rather sardonic view of herself. Mm. My favourite sentence, it's when they've arrived at London and they're shown into their room and it had formerly been Charlotte's and over the mantelpiece still hung a landscape in coloured silks of her performance in proof of her having spent seven years at a great school in town to some effect. You've you've spent seven years at this great school and what you've got to show for it is a landscape in coloured silks. Yeah, whereas, of course, there's my feeling that another thing it had to show was having totally indoctrinated Lady Middleton (laughs) with belief in appropriate behaviour. All it gave to Charlotte was the ability to work coloured silks. Yes. (laughs) This time, the character we're going to be talking about is Marianne. And I think one of the things that really comes through in this section is her extreme youth. As you said earlier, a lot of it isn't developed very well. But there were a couple of moments that really I found quite evocative. One is the bit where they go to Bond Street and she's looking everywhere hoping to see Willoughby. Yes. But the bit that I love is where... Mrs Jennings says to her, this cold weather will be keeping sportsmen in the country. Yes. And then later on, Marianne says to Eleanor, don't you find it colder than it was in the morning, Eleanor? There seems to me a very decided difference. I can hardly keep my hands warm, even in my muff. It was not so yesterday, I think. The clouds seem parting too. The sun will be out in a moment and we shall have a clear afternoon. It's yes. like she's just having been given this, 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 this twig of hope on what might be going on, she's now trying to make every eventuality fit to it so that Willoughby will come. Yes, yes. Which is really both believable but kind of sad. The other thing that makes me think of her as very young is at Eleanor, where she could have, she would have, if Eleanor had listened to her, gone through every room <laughs> in Eleanor that they have yeah. seen. One thing that I think we may have mentioned before is Marianne is absolutely genuine in everything she says and does. There's that bit earlier where Edward tries to undercut his appreciation for the picturesque and Eleanor says that's because he sees so many people exaggerating it and Marianne agrees that people exaggerate and everyone says we have no doubt that you feel exactly what you say you feel. She is completely legitimate and open about what she feels about everything. She's not manufacturing Possibly exaggerating her emotional responses to Willoughby, but not not to a huge extent. Part of the thing which I kept thinking about, you know, particularly when I was thinking about we only told what Marianne's doing, we're not told what she's thinking, yeah. that it could well be that that's a kind of, of writing that Jane Austen doesn't do. You don't have anywhere where you've got somebody being really emotional and really pouring out their thoughts. Mm. That's always given sideways. Yeah. It's always, even when Eleanor is dealing with her emotions, it's very analytic, reflective thinking about it. Yes, but particularly what we could have here, which would tell us about Marianne, would be of Marianne telling Eleanor, I think this and I think that, and will he come? And 
And that's not the sort of dialogue that mm. Jane Austen writes. No, she simply had not developed mm. a style for using that sort of talk. Mm. And that what she's used to is pricking the balloon of, of bombast. But mm. if she's got people talking like this emotionally, it's very hard. Mm. The other comment I wanted to make, and this is something that I heard in the commentaries on one of the TV versions, which is that Marianne is the only Jane Austen heroine who doesn't marry the man she loves. Yes. As in, Elizabeth is infatuated with Wickham. Emma sort of thinks that maybe she could let herself love Frank Churchill, but she doesn't. Yes. Anne, I suppose, enjoys Mr Elliot's company, but they all marry oh. the person they love. Maybe some of them are a little older than Marianne. They've had a first love that they've recovered from. But Marianne's the only one we see going through that, which does well, make I her unusual. I don't know if any of the others could have, yes. Yeah, you no, don't well, feel this, they This have. is where we get this point that I thought was quite interesting that Claire Tomalin was making, that Marianne ought to have been the heroine who died, but she'd been grossly disappointed. Her, her feelings are too much and she's going to die. And there's quite a bit towards the end where Marianne kept saying, if I had died, if I had died. Mm. And which is why one of these sort of lively aristocratic women talking about it, Lady Bespra, who said the book ended stupidly. <laughs> and these are the first people to appreciate her. Yeah. And they say what a fantastic book it is. But Lady Bespra says it ends stupidly. Mm. It is, after all, the whole scene where she gets sick. You probably, if you were reading it at the time, you were expecting her to die because that's what it all seems to be leading up to. Actually, there's that other point that I wanted to make, which is why on earth does Mrs Dashwood not let Marianne come back? It's ridiculous. There's no mm. reason. She loves Marianne. Marianne wants to come home. The real reason we know is because the plot requires her to stay in London. Yes, she has to stay in London. That, to me, I suppose, is the biggest implausibility of mm. everything in the plot. Yeah. At the end of the book, when she marries Colonel Brandon, what do we think her feelings are? They're I, not what she felt for Willoughby. No, I just think she re really was very badly knocked by what she felt for Willoughby. And she is there with her mother and Eleanor, push, push, pushing her to marry Colonel Brandon. I mean, I was just reread some of that just the other night and I was almost appalled. You know, she goes through a real sort of evangelical thing. I've done wrong, I've done wrong, I must learn to behave better. I must learn to be like Eleanor. But it's just that she's got these two people pushing her towards it when she's in a state of great repentance and self-sacrifice. Now, I, I just got quite got the horrors at the extent to which Eleanor and Mrs Dashwood are pushing it to Colonel Brandon. Quite apart from all the horrors of what her situation's going to be bringing up Willoughby's love child. Mm. But... On the other hand, we talked last time I was here about the fact that Colonel Brandon is actually a romantic hero in terms of his backstory. Yes. Um, Perhaps she realises that well, he is. Well, perhaps she, she can turn him into a hero with the secret sorrow and romanticise mm. him. But in just these two years, you know. What I feel is she's had her heart broken. She's been absolutely devastated. Her life has basically, as she sees it, been ruined. Yeah. And then 
Colonel Brandon is there. He's reliable. He's secure. He has this romantic past, which she's in tune with, but also she might have actually started listening to him talk and realised that he's nice to talk to. He has exactly the amount of money she said is a confidence. <laughs> it's not exactly settling. It is genuinely a positive choice for her. But whether she is in love with him, whether she will ever be in love with him, I don't think. But for solid companionship, reliability, all of that, she's probably, after the damage Willoughby has done to her, she's probably scared to love anyone again. I suppose I would be less surprised by it if Marianne was older. But, I mean, she's, she's 20. Mm. She's, you know, she's got so much life ahead of her. Two years is a pretty short time to give up all hope. Mm. Perhaps she simply grows up in those two years and isn't the teenage romance queen and can appreciate Colonel Brandon in a more adult way. Perhaps she becomes an adult. Yes. At perhaps, 20. perhaps she succeeds in becoming more like Eleanor. Even if she was 25, I'd mm. be more likely to accept it. It's just that I sort of feel that her mother is there pushing her far too hard. Mm. So just to wind up about Marianne, there are a couple of questions I'd, I'd like to think about, one of which is, do we think she is the heroine of the book or is she equal to Eleanor or is she a little bit secondary to Eleanor? And related to that is the question, do we like Marianne? Right. I was recently just having a look at a quite old article by C.S. Lewis from 1954 called A Note on Jane Austen. Most of it's not relevant to what we're talking about at the moment. But one thing struck me is in the first section when he was talking about the heroines of the book, he mentioned Marianne and he didn't mention Eleanor. There's no reason to put Eleanor into that article. It was an article about a particular trope, but he said it didn't apply to either Fanny or... He said it didn't apply to Fanny, Fanny or, or Anne. Anne. He didn't say this doesn't apply to Anne, Fanny and Eleanor. He just said this doesn't apply to Anne or Fanny. So that seemed to me he was removing Eleanor from the ranks of heroines in the same way he didn't say it doesn't apply to Jane. Later on, he does talk about there being two plots, but in the first instance, he just seemed to think of Marianne as the heroine. And I've always thought that they are more equal. So I would not say Marianne is the heroine and Ellen is not, but I probably would say of the two, if you had to pick one as more important and one as less important, I'd probably say Eleanor is more important. Well, mainly because she is sitting there as Jane Austen's voice. Yeah. In a way, Marianne is very much from the outside. Mm. Ellen is from inside. As I said, my follow-on question to that is, do we like Marianne? Yes. And I've got to say, I've always been Team Eleanor. I often find Marianne profoundly irritating. Well, my original feeling was the same, but this reading where... Again, I've put more effort into it because I've never liked Sense and Sensibility as much as the others. And now I've just ended up feeling much more sympathetic with Marianne. I like the way she comes bouncing out with things, but also I felt sorry for her, the way the others sort of turn on her. Mm. And Eleanor does tell her off mm. at considerable length. Mm. Yeah, I do think Marianne comes alive off the page much more than Eleanor, or indeed more than um, Edward Brandon 
and even maybe Willoughby. She comes alive with her emotions and her happiness and her grief and she is much more vibrant than Eleanor but at the same time as I said at times I do find that profoundly irritating and so at the end of the day I still like Eleanor more as a character. Well, actually, this time through, I'm liking Eleanor less, mm. partly because of all those little moralisings that, that Jane Austen has put into her mouth, which I hadn't noticed so much before. Mm. The reason we asked Michael to join us again today is to talk about duelling in the Regency period. So I thought I'd start with what the novel does say about the duel, which is, in fact, remarkably little. Uh, it is the least dramatic way of presenting a dramatic event one could imagine. In fact, I think some readers might even miss the fact that there's a duel. Yes. Yes. However, I do think that it would be very clear to a contemporary oh, audience. Oh, yes. Yep. Yes. Have you, she continued, after a short silence, ever seen Mr Willoughby since you left him at Barton? Yes, he replied gravely. Once I have. One meeting was unavoidable. Eleanor, startled by his manner, looked at him anxiously, saying, What have you met him to? I could meet him no other way. Eliza had confessed to me, though most reluctantly, the name of her lover. And when he returned to town, which was within a fortnight after myself, we met by appointment. He to defend... I to punish his conduct. We returned unwounded, and the meeting, therefore, never got abroad. Eleanor sighed over the fancied necessity of this, but to a man and a soldier she presumed not to censure it. So as Harriet said, that doesn't seem to tell us very much, I think, to a 21st century reader. They could easily miss that there was a duel at all. But by unpacking the details, I think we can be pretty certain of what Jane Austen envisaged happening. So I think the first thing I need to say is that duelling, which was never as common in Britain as it was on the continent, was in very steep decline by the Regency. And it is, in fact, fairly unlikely that two people of the class of Colonel Brandon and Willoughby would have a duel at this time in history, since those duels that did take place, such as the famous ones between Lord Paget and Captain Cadogan, or between Lord Castlereagh and George Canning, which both occurred in 1809, tended to be among members of the aristocracy rather than the gentry. English law, in theory and increasingly in practice as the 19th century progressed, tended to regard dueling as manslaughter, or even murder. Duels between serving officers in the army or navy were expressly forbidden, although they did occur, especially, as I noted last time I was here, in India. It should be said, dueling was far more common in Ireland than it was in England. Choice of weapon, contrary to what Hollywood shows, was not the prerogative of the challenged party. Indeed, if anything, contemporary dueling codes tend to suggest that the challenger, as the offended party, has the right to choose. 
However, by the Regency, certainly in England, choice of weapons as well as the time and place of the encounter were negotiated by the seconds. Seconds being the particular friends of the duelists designated to act on their behalf. The job of the seconds was to ensure that the duel was conducted fairly and honourably. It should be said that in earlier times, in the 17th and 18th centuries, it was not unknown for the seconds to also fight. But, th <laughs> but this, in the much more regulated world of the Regency duel, no longer happened. So what kind of duel would Willoughby and Brandon have engaged in? Well, I am completely certain that their duel would have been with pistols, not swords. Dueling with swords in Britain had more or less ceased to exist by the middle of the 18th century, precisely because it was vastly more dangerous than dueling with pistols. Well, it's like Lord Peter Wimsey says, a bullet may go anywhere, but steel is almost bound to go somewhere. <laughs> exactly. So in the English mind, ever since the duel in 1712 between Charles Lord Mowen and James Duke of Hamilton had occurred where they both killed one another within a few seconds, the idea that dueling with the small sword was unbelievably deadly was commonly recognised. So although to the untrained 21st century eye, the small sword or court sword with its light, even dainty seeming blade might seem like not much of a weapon. In fact, it's far more deadly than a broadsword. It was designed precisely to deliver deep penetrating wounds, which were very frequently fatal. What had these swords been developed for? Just for dueling? They were, they were a specialist sword just for dueling. So they had developed out of the rapier of the 16th and early 17th century. The rapier was a much heavier sword, but from the Renaissance onwards, European fencing masters had rapidly worked out that if you want to kill your opponent, then the point is far deadlier than the edge. It is actually extremely difficult to kill someone with a cut, even if you're a highly skilled swordsman. Uh, the other great disadvantage of dueling with swords, particularly in Britain, was that dueling with swords, of course, favours the skillful swordsman. And almost no one in Britain was a skillful swordsman. They were far less likely than their continental counterparts to be properly trained in fencing. And one reason for that was that unlike France or Italy in particular, being a fencing master was not the high status gentlemanly profession in Britain that it was on the continent. The other issue is that to be highly proficient with the small sword requires, as Hamlet would say, continuous practice. Yes. They simply didn't do it. And the consequence is that dueling with this thrusting sword by inexperienced swordsmen was even more dangerous. So, for example, in the Moen and Hamilton duel that I mentioned earlier, they both ran at one another, stabbed one another repeatedly through the body and fell down dead. 
I can also be entirely confident that the novel's duel isn't with swords, as a duel with swords can only be honourably stopped when first blood was shed, and the passage is quite explicit with Colonel Brandon saying that they both returned unwounded. So, what was Regency dueling with pistols like? Films and television have led to many misunderstandings about how such duels were carried out. So, the Hollywood cliche of standing back-to-back -back and marching ten paces makes for good camera angles and close-ups of the hero's chiseled profiles, but they basically never happened. Instead, the duelists took their mark a measured distance from one another. This was negotiated between the seconds, but was often 10 yards. The next thing I want to point out is that dueling pistols were smoothbore. Smoothbore means that they don't have rifling in their barrels. The spiraled grooves carved to the inside of a barrel designed to grip the ball and greatly increase the weapon's accuracy. So Willoughby and Colonel Brandon, with their hunting guns, they would have been rifled. But the Coda duellers were quite explicit in banning rifled dueling pistols, and it was, in fact, one of the designated tasks of the seconds to check that neither pistol included hidden rifling. Did they, in fact, use pairs of pistols? Or they absolutely always used a pair of pistols to ensure that there was no advantage. So it would be cheating for you to turn up with your own pistol. Yes. Uh, so it was all about this idea of making it as equal as possible. So how was the duel conducted? The most common way to signal when opponents could fire was the drop of a handkerchief held by a third party who unsurprisingly was standing well to the side out of the line of fire. And I think it's easy to see how such an arrangement, intentionally or otherwise, would dramatically reduce casualties, since it does tend to mean that inexperienced duelists trying to look both at the drop of the handkerchief and at their opponent are likely to panic and fire too quickly without taking proper aim, and consequently missing. Because until the handkerchief was dropped, they had to have their arm yes, by their, their side. Yes, their arm is down by their side. They're not allowed to raise the pistol until... So, so they're not allowed to sort of spend plenty of time taking aim. They've got they, to be... They are. Of course, you can take as long as you like. But after but the handkerchief's been dropped. After the handkerchief's dropped, conscious that your opponent can shoot at you at any time. So it takes a very strong nerve to do so. It's also worth pointing out that dueling pistols tend to have hair triggers. In other words, they've got a very soft pull. Yes. So I have no doubt that that's what Willoughby did, that he will have funked it, fired too early, and missed. So that both of them have done this? No. Too, no. So that the handkerchief is dropped and Willoughby... Immediately raises his arm and fires without aiming properly. Yeah, because after all, most of his shooting's been with a shotgun, hasn't it? His experience with pistols would be very limited. On the other hand, so would Colonel Brandon's. Uh, it would be a mistake to assume that an army officer would be a particularly skilled pistol shot. After all, a colonel's chief weapon on the battlefield 
is his battalion. He's there to manage his men, not to kill people himself. However, I do think that there is a more romantic option, which I would certainly use were I directing an adaptation. <laughs> and that is that Colonel Brandon doesn't panic, but rather that he delopes. And as we all know from George at yes, deloping is firing into the air. <laughs> well, it's to deliberately miss. So it is actually very rare for the challenger to delope in historical examples. Cha well, I mean, after all, he said he's going there to punish him. Exactly. <laughs> is, is it exactly punishing him, only to give him a terrible fright? <laughs> yes. Um, so historically, deloping most frequently occurs when the challenged party delopes, and this is seen as a way of honourably accepting the blame. However, it did occasionally occur with the challenger, and this would have had a very ambiguous meaning to those observing. On the one hand, it could be regarded as an act of mercy, but on the other hand, it could also be seen as a sign of contempt that the opponent is not worthy of a bullet, is not worthy of an honourable death. So how dangerous was duelling in the Regency? Well, reliable figures are hard to come across. I have seen published mortality figures as high as 15 or even 20%, but my feeling is that these are deeply misleading. After all, Figures can only be derived from reported duels, and in my view, the majority of duels were not reported, and the ones that were reported are far more likely to be those where death or serious injury occurred. So my suspicion is that the overwhelming majority of Regency duels went unreported precisely because they ended in exactly the same unmelodramatic way as Willoughby and Brandon's did with, as the novel says, both unwounded and therefore they never got abroad. In the four film and TV adaptations of Sense and Sensibility, the period drama ones, the chapters we've looked at today, all four of them follow pretty much the same structure for this section. And in some cases, they all foretake the same divergences from the book. So they all have Colonel Brandon making his call, and every single one of them contains his wonderful line about wishing Marianne every imaginable happiness and that Willoughby may endeavour to deserve her. Oh, uh, that's interesting yes, that, that they thought that was an important point, mm. yes. Well, I think that does perhaps go to adding to something's wrong about Willoughby. Alan Rickman in 1995, I think, delivers it best. Yeah. But <laughs> that's not surprising. You then have various elements of Marianne anxiously awaiting Willoughby to call or write. Then they all go to an assembly or a ball. In all cases, there's dancing, whereas in the book, there doesn't appear to be dancing. Or if there is, it's happening in a completely other room and Marianne and Eleanor aren't involved. At the assembly or ball, Marianne sees Willoughby, collapses and is brought home and... Then Colonel Brandon comes to tell his story. One really interesting difference that is consistent across all four is Robert Ferrers is at the ball. Oh. And in the book, Robert Ferrers doesn't turn up for chapters yet to come. 
But yeah. they all of the adaptations have independently decided to introduce him at the ball. Typically, Marianne is more publicly humiliated. You, you get the sense in the book that Eleanor keeps it pretty much mm. under control, whereas often in the adaptations you actually have Marianne calling out Willoughby across the room. And interestingly, the Eliza story is very slightly different in each adaptation, and I don't know if this reflects social mores of the time of the adaptation. In 1971... Brandon doesn't even tell the story of Eliza Senior. He just says that young Eliza is his niece, the child of a loveless and unhappy union. He received an urgent summons. She was in London. Her condition could no longer be concealed. And she had attempted to do away with herself. That's an addition, mm. not in the book. She was 18. Then in 1981, Eliza is his ward, given by her dying mother who he had loved but who was forced to marry another, a faithless man. But there's no implication of a separation or a divorce or that young Eliza is illegitimate. 1995 is kind of interesting because Mrs Jennings had actually earlier in the film already told the story of Eliza Senior, told Eleanor about Colonel Brandon's unhappy past. But even then there's this big change. It completely gets rid of the concept of Eliza having to marry Brandon's brother. In this case it's that Eliza was the family's ward but she was poor and so when Brandon's father knew he wanted to marry Eliza, he threw her out. She was then passed from man to man and bore an illegitimate child. So this is the first time where young Eliza, who's called Beth in this case, is actually illegitimate. The other thing, though, that happens at this point in the 1995 version is that Brandon goes on to say that he believes that Willoughby did love Marianne, but he knows that Willoughby's aunt found out about it and cut him off. This, of course, <laughs> is a story that in the book... And in the other adaptations, Willoughby tells to Eleanor, but this version, they decided to completely excise Willoughby, giving his justification to Eleanor, which we'll talk about a bit later, particularly when we talk about Willoughby and the implications that has for his character. The 2008 version, it's pretty much as it was in the book, but there's no explanation of why she was married to his older brother, and it also doesn't actually say one way or the other who was the father of Eliza Junior. He could have been his brother, she could have been illegitimate, it's unstated. In this one, she's only 15 years old, and the first news Brandon got of her was on the morning of the picnic. Now, I think that's really odd in terms of this 2008 version, because you may remember I was talking way back earlier when Willoughby and Brandon are first face to face there's this ominous music and these meaningful looks and you get a sense that there's bad blood between them and yet all of that is before Brandon knew anything was amiss so that just didn't make sense they set up this conflict between them unnecessarily the other thing is that the 2008 version is the only one that even mentions the duel none of the others so much as have a passing reference to a duel between it after seeing Willoughby with Miss Grey, Marianne collapses and she's caught by Colonel Brandon. And Colonel Brandon is giving Willoughby the filthiest look. And <laughs> that's where episode three ends. And at least on our DVD, so probably when it was shown on live television, it immediately jumps to your sort of preview of what's going to happen next time. And the first shot you get in the preview is of Brandon and Willoughby having a duel with swords. <laughs> and then... The next episode starts with the duel, and that is intercut with Marianne sitting up at night, writing to Willoughby, 
obviously just after what's happened at the ball. What time of day is the duel happening? The duel is happening in the morning. So that, that is actually one of the really confusing things about it, though, is we know, having read the book, that this duel took place some time ago and was because of what Willoughby did to Eliza. The placement of it here, it's really unclear to someone who's read the book. Is this meant to be a flashback to the duel that they had because of Eliza? Or, in fact, has Brandon helped Marianne home and then gone back to the ball and challenged Willoughby and this is at dawn the next morning and they're fighting because of what he's done to Marianne? As I said, the duel is with swords. It is... I don't think particularly well fight choreographed. I think it is amongst the worst inappropriately choreographed film or television duels I've ever seen. So they do have one thing right in that they're fighting with court swords. However, they use them like they're broadswords. So they're swipe, swipe, swipe rather yes. than poke, poke. Yes. yes, they're far too close to one another. They cut at one another. If I were generous, I would say it's like Olympic sabre fencing but really it's it's it, not <laughs> well the guards they use are olympic sabre fe- yeah. fencing but but they're these massive cuts now small swords did have an edge but the edge was there principally to stop your opponent grabbing it to stop disarm by seizure it, yes. it it does not deliver an effective cut one thing that i do think is quite effective about that duel is after holding his blade to willoughby's neck brandon then pulls it away and stalks off with a look of contempt on his face, which I do think fits with what you were saying yes. about firing into the air if you were the challenger of you're not worth it. Yes. Yeah, very much you're not worth me getting arrested for murder, I suppose. You have this duel that is historically improbable, poorly executed and confusing in terms of what it means in terms of the plot, which is all a bit strange, but it is dramatic. I think it's probably not confusing to the viewer who hasn't read the book because they just assume that that they're having a duel over Marianne. Because, of course, from the viewer who hasn't read the book, they don't know about Eliza yet because Brandon Mm. hasn't come to tell them about Eliza. Yes. Yes. So, yeah, but it's very contrary to the book in that case. Yes. Moving on from adaptations to modernisations, one of the interesting things with modernizations of Jane Austen novels is seeing how they deal with these key plot points that are particularly tied to the 19th century. And so because of that, before recording this episode, I made sure that I would watch the final two main film modernizations of Sense and Sensibility that I hadn't previously watched or only such a long time ago, which are From Prada to Nada and Sense and Sensibility. So before I talk about what they've done with the Eliza story and the Marianne story. I just thought I'd give a quick overview of these. Both of these films were released in 2011, which is the 200th anniversary of the publication of Sense and Sensibility. From Prada to Nada is described as the Latino version of Sense and Sensibility. Eleanor and Marianne are Nora and Mary Dominguez, and they live with their father in Beverly Hills. When he unexpectedly dies, they learn they've got a half-brother, Gabe, that they never knew about, and their father's estate is split between the three of them, except it turns out their father was actually bankrupt. So (laughs) they sell their share of the house to Gabe, and when his wife Olivia makes life unpleasant for them, they move to East LA to live with their maternal aunt, and they start to get in touch with their Mexican roots. 
Nora gives up college and takes a sort of lowly position in a law firm. Edward is Olivia's brother, he's a lawyer, and he's Nora's boss. Brandon has evolved into Bruno, their aunt's neighbour, and Willoughby is Rodrigo, a teaching assistant at Mary's College, and Lucy is a friend of Olivia's. Thematically, I think this film is about connecting with family and culture, and although there were some bits of it I didn't much like, overall I did think it was quite fun, and I certainly enjoyed it way more than Material Girls. The other one I watched is Sense and Sensibility, and that's S-C-E-N-T-S and Sensibility. I've heard this described as a Mormon version, and when I looked into it, it was filmed in Utah by a Utah-based production company. But I'm not sure if it was actually done by the Church of Latter-day Saints. It certainly wasn't as overly church-focused as Pride and Prejudice, the Latter-day comedy was. I've also heard it described as a Hallmark movie. It's not actually made by the Hallmark company, but I guess it could have been shown on the Hallmark channel. So in this one, Eleanor, Marianne and Margaret Dashwood's father is convicted of fraud and they lose all their money. Margaret has some strange form of leukemia that can be managed, but only with expensive medication. Eleanor and Marianne have to get jobs to cover Margaret's medication. Eleanor can't get a professional job because of the publicity from her father's arrest, so she does janitorial work in a spa, which is owned by Fran Ferris. And one of her co-workers is Lucy Steele, while Fran's brother is Edward. Edward in this is also a lawyer. Marianne has changed her surname and gets a job as a copy assistant, and Brandon is a fellow worker. She was involved with Willoughby since before their father's arrest. But one of the key plot points, nothing to do with the book, is that in her spare time, Marianne makes scented lotions which seem to have some sort of magical healing properties, <laughs> and Eleanor starts selling them at the spa. This is not a great film. There are some really weird plot elements and some very undefined character motivations. I found it not unpleasant, but rather forgettable. Although there is one thing I will say of it. It's one of the 50% of the film and TV versions to include the character of Margaret. In the other versions, Margaret wants to be a writer, or she wants to be a scientist, or she wants to be a pirate. But in this one, I think she's truly fulfilling her destiny as being nothing but a plot device. <laughs> so now I'm just looking at how all of these different modernizations have treated the Brandon Willoughby Marianne plot. In the Bollywood version from 2000, the Willoughby character, who's called Srikanth, I think, though I'm probably not pronouncing that right, has no connection with Major Bala. So there's no version of the Eliza story. Instead, he owns a finance company. Or he's see I can't remember his exact role, whether he owns it or whether he's just very senior in it. But the company goes bankrupt and has to pay back its investors. But a minister offers to bail him out if Srikanth marries his daughter. He explains this to the Marianne character who's called Menakshi rather than talking to the Eleanor character about it. And when he's doing this, he emphasises the people who've invested all their savings and how important it is to get them back their money. And what I can't remember is whether he was responsible for the finance company going under or whether he was responsible for convincing people to invest or whether that was out of his control and he's doing what he feels he has to do to get people their money back. In the 2006 Material Girls, it's pretty minor really, as in Sense and Sensibility. The Willoughby character was engaged to the Marianne character before they lost their money and he then gets his agent to dump her saying she's now a liability, so that's pretty oh. minimalist. Not a big part of the plot to be honest, whereas in the Bollywood version it was a very significant part of the plot. In From Prada to Nada, 
Again, there's no connection at all with Brandon. Rodrigo goes back to Mexico. Then there's an engagement party for Edward and Lucy, which Nora and Mary go to, and they see Rodrigo there with a woman he introduces as his wife, and it's really not clear whether he was married to her all along or whether he went back to Mexico and got married. There's nothing to explain it. I thought it was going to be that he wasn't as rich as they thought he was and he married her for money, but there was no explanation at all. Sense and sensibility. Again, seems to be an ongoing theme with these modernizations. No connection between the Willoughby character and Brandon. But this is the only modernization that incorporates Eliza at all. Once again, he was Marianne's boyfriend at the start of the film. And he tells Marianne he's in Vienna when in fact he hasn't gone anywhere. So when she sees him one day in the park with another girl, she realises he's been lying to her. And at that point, she's furious, but she gets over it. And at that point, she starts getting more friendly with Brandon. But then after that, when Fran Ferris is trying to get the recipe for Marianne's lotion so she can sell it to someone else... I know, it's a really silly and complicated plot. (laughs) She actually blackmails the Willoughby character by saying that if he doesn't get Marianne to give him the recipe, she will reveal all about Eliza Williams. And he says, I had a friend and she got pregnant. That's how he justifies it to Marianne. So that's how they update that. The web series Eleanor and Marianne Take Barton, the Willoughby brush-off is... He's basically just saying he's not in a relationship place. He wanted, when he comes to university, to just have fun. As you can see, these are mostly just weird and wonderful stretches to connect to the book. I think the Bollywood version with the finance company is a very interesting twist on it. Mm -hmm. Most of the others are not interesting at all. The final one is the Joanna Trollope version, which, as I've said before, is often a little bit uninspired because she feels compelled to keep very close to the original, whereas the others gave themselves (laughs) a lot more flexibility. But her version of it is drugs. When Brandon tells his story, he loved Eliza. She liked him as a friend, but she was mesmerised by his brother. Brandon's brother didn't treat her well. She left him. She went from man to man, and she died of an overdose. And she had a baby by her first dealer. So that does actually match point for point with the Eliza story in the original. And then young Eliza met Wills at a club and he gave her her first hit and she's been on drugs ever since. And the reason Brandon dashed off was not because she was pregnant and needing help, but because the police had broken down a toilet door in a pub and found Eliza inside injecting into her feet. I think that's probably the best updating of it in terms of trying to find a modern context for something that's as extreme. Listening to the Reading Jane Austen podcast with me, Harriet, me, Michael, and me, Ellen. In our next episode, we'll be looking at chapters 32 to 36 of Sense and Sensibility. The structure of this podcast was inspired by Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Our music is Creative Commons performances of pieces Jane Austen might have listened to. You can find us on Facebook at Reading Jane Austen and our website readingjaneaustin.com You can email us at readingjaneaustin.com or rate and review us in your podcast app. We hope you'll join us next time.